The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. For the last 25 years, the U.S. women's soccer team has been a cultural juggernaut. When I was growing up, there was Mia Hamm and Brandi Chastain. Today's sports fans have Alex Morgan and Megan Rapinoe. But when it comes to the U.S. men's team, I actually can't name a single player. The women's team wins World Cups. The men's team doesn't even qualify. The women's team's popularity, though, doesn't show up in their paychecks. No matter how famous female athletes are in soccer or in anything else, they don't make anywhere close to what men do. The U.S. women's soccer team wants to change that. A few months ago, they filed a lawsuit against the U.S. Soccer Federation asking for equal pay for equal work. Last week, I went to London to tape a live episode of this show all about women's soccer. We talked about the growing professional league there, the World Cup, and whether female athletes will ever make what men do. But before I went, I wanted to understand what's going on here in the U.S. Evan Novi williams covers sports for Bloomberg. I asked him to tell me why female soccer players make so much less than men. Hi, Evan. Hi, how are you? Thanks for coming. (laughs) Thanks for having me. So in March, the U.S. women's soccer team filed this big lawsuit for gender discrimination. Can you tell me about it? They are a women's national soccer team. Uh, for those who don't know, a tremendously successful program on the on the global world stage is asking for essentially the same pay that men get. You know, the equal pay for equal work. That is their argument, that they, just like the men's national team, they travel, they train, they play games here, they play games abroad, they go to the World Cup, um, they do all the same things that the men get, uh, except they're not paid the same, and they uh, they feel as though they're, they're owed that. Part of that is the success of the two teams, right? The, the last Women's World Cup in 2015, the U.S. not only won, but the, the finals match against Japan when the U.S. just blew the Japanese team out of the water. They uh, that was the most watched soccer game ever in American in U.S. history, U.S. television history. Um, so, you know, for, for that reason and the fact that the men's team, you know, a couple of years later failed to qualify for the World Cup. Right. So they missed the most important event of, of the men's soccer schedule. You know, there, there are a number of women's soccer players who are, you know, stars in and of themselves. And you can't at least right now can't really say, say the same about the men's team. Yeah, so why are women making less money? The two teams are structured very differently. So women are paid more like traditional employees in that they have a yearly salary and they also get some money depending on the or the amount of games they play. The men men's national team is essentially paid game by game. So if you look at those kind of averaged out over a year, uh, a man who plays kind of the full slate of games for the U.S. men's national team over the course of a year gets paid a significant amount more than a woman who gets paid the same get plays the, the same amount of games over that same year. I think one argument that might work against the women is how much money the teams are bringing in each 
and how many people are watching each of the teams. Are the women bringing in more money? Are they getting more viewers? Do they have that argument to make that they're more valuable? So all the international soccer schedule works in these four-year cycles that culminate in the World Cup. Uh, the fact that the men didn't, the U.S. men didn't qualify for the World Cup didn't mean that U.S. soccer didn't make a tremendous amount of money off the men's team because Fox, which pays for the rights to broadcast those in English, uh, they still paid that money, right? They expected the U.S. to be there. Uh, certainly executives at Fox were a little bummed that they paid a lot of money for rights and, and people weren't able to watch the men's team. But it's still a tremendously huge property, right? It's still probably one of the biggest events on the U.S. sports calendar every four years when it comes up. Uh, And for that reason, the men's team brings in a lot of money. Now, women's World Cup and women's national team games are part of that same package. So it's kind of hard Mm -hmm. to break out, you know, hey, if Fox paid a billion dollars for this right cycle, is it, you know, is it 600 million for the men's side, 400 million for the women's side? Is it 80-20? Is it 75-25? It's hard to break those out. But but the bulk of the money that U.S. soccer makes in media revenue is really for the men's soccer tournament. But you said that the Women's World Cup game that the U.S. won two cycles ago was the most watched soccer game in U.S. history? Yeah. And so I think this is exactly where the the claim by the women starts to get really interesting, is that on the field, the team is much more successful than the men. And you're starting to see metrics that show that you know maybe from from a few different business perspectives they're 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 becoming they're starting to catch up from from the money standpoint as well again the the viewership number is less relevant than what you know u.s soccer gets paid for the fox to air that game but certainly right? that's, so it's a little they're related absolutely no they're certainly related the people who advocate for u.s women to be paid more they accept the fact that the men's national team makes more than the women's national team but there's an argument out there to be made that if you put more resources behind it, maybe if you paid the women more, you know, maybe if that, you know, ginned up a little more enthusiasm for games, more people are going to go to them, more people are going to watch them. And then if U.S. soccer invested more in this women's team, who says that they couldn't close the revenue gap a little bit more as well, right? And this is kind of a chicken and egg argument, which really exists for women's sports across the world, right? Because the argument always against, you know, paying professional women's athletes more money than they're making right now is that they're not generating as much as the men. Um, But there is certainly kind of a strain of this argument that says, hey, what happens if we actually invest more upfront in women's sports? There's tremendous amount of momentum for it from a corporate standpoint, from a viewership standpoint. Um, And and if we maybe if we invest them, then this argument of, hey, the men's team makes so much more than the women's team, maybe that starts to narrow or even disappear. But I also think we're in this moment where female athletes in the U.S. especially are you know, some of the best athletes we've seen, they're celebrities, they're brands, they bring in a ton of money. I mean, I'm thinking like Serena Williams or Simone Mm -hmm. Biles or some of these soccer players. So it does feel like the tides are turning in that way, at least. Yeah. And I I would argue that there is almost like a total kind of discrepancy between the presence that these women have from like a brand and marketing standpoint versus the way that they are kind of treated on the court. But I can tell you, if you listen to a Nike earnings call any time in the past couple months, you know, Mark Parker is adamant that they are in a phase right now, a turning point in terms of women, in terms of the aspirational quality of female athletes out there, in terms of the growth in sales that they're seeing for women's apparel and for women's shoes. 
the Women's World Cup, which is coming up in, in about a month, uh, they are treating very, very seriously. If you talk to people in that, in, in the apparel space, in a lot of the corporate side of things, they, they think that we're reaching this kind of major turning point in terms of the way that consumers view uh, female athletes. I like how you're like, if you listen to those Nike's earnings calls, and yeah. <laughs> Evan has to do that. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just take my word for it. Uh, he talks about women a lot. <laughs> When you look at the world, you know, we're 50% of the population. Like, where is our place? Like, where is our value? Women deserve equal pay for equal work. Today is the deadline for UK businesses to report their gender pay gap details. Results show few signs of progress, and in some cases, the imbalance has got worse. Should women and men be paid the same for what they do in sport? 28 members of the U.S. women's national soccer team filing a gender discrimination lawsuit against the U.S. Soccer Federation. We are less promoted than the men's side. And when it goes to compensation, we aren't paid a dollar to a dollar. Having a Ballon d'Or for both a female and a male is a completely natural thing to me. Sport can influence the emancipation of girls and women in a society. Welcome to The Paycheck. I'm Rebecca Greenfield. Last week, I went to London for Bloomberg's Equality Summit. With the Women's World Cup coming up in June, I sat down to talk women's sports and pay with Kelly Smith. She played soccer in the UK and the US for 20 years. And she holds the record for the most goals scored ever by a woman in England. We were joined by Kelly Simmons, the head of the Women's Football Association in England, and Lena Weldson-Gabell, the managing director for Europe and the Middle East for the sports marketing agency Wasserman. We start by talking about how the sport has changed for women in the last 20 years. So I want to start with where we are in the sport today and where we've come from. And Kelly, you played for decades. And I think you can, I want to hear from you how far we've come from a player's perspective. What did it used to be like and what is it like now for women playing in the UK? Like you said, I've played um, pretty much been a a footballer my whole life. Um, I'm 40 years old now, retired a few years ago. And when I first started playing the game of football, um, I was having to pay to play. I was playing sub fees, referees fees, paying for the pitches, um, playing for the stadiums that we were playing in. Um, It was really at the lowest of the low. When I was playing for England at the age of 16, the pitches that we were training on were very muddy, very boggy. Some of the pitches had dog poo on. Um, You know, it was the lowest of the low that you could be. Um, Now I look at the state of the game 20-odd years ago, having retired. I see thousands of people um, interested in the women's games turning up. We... Recently had an FA Cup final at Wembley, Manchester City v West Ham, where 44,000 attended the game. Um, We have the Women's World Cup this year, which for me is going to be the most special tournament uh, with the most watched viewing figures, because the BBC are covering all the, the women's games. When I was playing, people used to say to me, why do you only play one game a year? And I'm like, what? We have a whole season, but they only used to see one game on TV, and that was the FA Cup final. So I think the game is in such a big, healthy state. More brands are coming on board, more sponsors um, are interested in the game. So it's just in a fantastic place. Yeah, that, that's really wild to me that just 20 years ago, women were paying to play. 
something that I, you know, I think we consider a profession now. Kelly, I want to hear about the state of play from a league standpoint and, and where we are now and how it's professionalised. The Women's Super League went fully professional this season, just finished Arsenal. So it's the first time, really, that um, I guess girls can look up and see role models like Kelly and think, wow, I can be, like the guys, I can be a professional footballer. I can see that journey through schools, through clubs, through our England youth teams and, and become a professional footballer. Uh, where we are, I know the topic's gender pay gap. I can't think of an industry that's a starker difference, uh, if I'm honest. Um, because, you know, we know here that men's football is a multi-billion industry. It's not just women's football, women's sport has had over the years, uh, recent stats, I think absolutely like 1% of sponsorship deals, women's sport here. Um, but it's shifting massively. So we've gone professional. Uh, we've brought in Barclays on a, as our title sponsor for next year in a record deal. It's the biggest investment by a brand uh, in women's sport in the UK. Um, we're starting to see the clubs bring in commercial partners as well to help uh, transform the women's game and make it more sustainable. I guess we're on a journey. We've moved massively from dodgy pitches with dog muck. Yeah, you mentioned the pay gap. And in the UK, mm. you guys have pay reporting, which we don't have in the US. And I, I know Bloomberg's reported that the biggest gaps were the football leagues. Yeah. But Lena, yeah, I want to... I, you know, you mentioned Barclays, and I want to talk about that more. But yeah, what is the interest from brands and sponsorships and the business interest now? And how has that developed recently? Yeah, I mean, I've seen such a change. I mean, I, I'm also American, clearly. Um, and I came over here about 10 years ago. And it's gone from when I first started in this industry as being a vanity investment at the time uh, and a decision maker or someone from a brand would say, you know what, I'm investing in men's football on this side of the fence, but you know what, I, to feel good, I'm going to do this as well. And the, the heart wasn't into it. I'm sure you guys saw it. They wouldn't put any resources behind it, but they had it in their sort of repertoire of things they were doing to feel good about themselves. And so they weren't doing anything for the game. But what we are seeing now is a real start and a real investment by brands understanding women's sports, understanding how to engage with it, understanding the value of it. And it's not for everyone, but it's for some brands who believe in growing the game and are useful to the game and growing the integrity of the game. Those are the people we want to see there. Yeah, I think I mean, we've seen um, seven brands come in uh, over the last year to invest in women's football across the Lionesses uh, and the Women's Super League. Obviously, Barclays is our record deal, I think. Um, first of all, there's a big audience women's football so I think there's a myth um, that there's not a big audience uh, women's world cup coming up uh, three quarters of a million tickets sold four million people watching the women's euros here when it was on channel four it's on bbc one um, coming up you know multi-millions of people will be following uh, the lionesses I do want to talk about pay and I know you know in the US the women's team is suing for equal pay I think the conversation here is very different. We're, we're definitely further away from that here. And Kelly, I'm wondering, you know, how you think we move that conversation forward or where you think we are in the equal pay fight? Um, it's, a, it's hard for me to kind of justify our England players, you know, earning what the men play because of the, you know, the TV revenue, the sponsorship that comes through. I can totally understand the U.S. lawsuit. Um, they generate, generated more profits and revenue than the U.S. Soccer, uh, soccer 
Federation. They, they had large audience and played more games than the men. Um, the women have also won three World Cups, four Olympics. We're and really the, good. <laughs> <laughs> and the men's team have only just won one knockout round game in the World Cup this generation and failed to qualify for the World Cup um, last year. So I can see where they're coming from. They're in a different um, yeah. place because they've been successful. Our lionesses haven't had that success. And right now, it's, it's, for me, it's not about them earning millions because there's not millions to be earned within the game as I said because of the the money that's not hasn't been in the game they want to grow the game they want to be the faces of women's football they want to inspire the next generation and I think that's what we want as female athletes to inspire the young girls they want to be role models so when a five or six year old looks up and says I want to play football then you can see Steph Horton the England captain or Fran Kirby and be like I want to do what she's done I want to do what Kelly Smith did and that is so more important for these generation of players is not to say that in future years they won't be earning more money I hope they do but as I said before we were paying to play uh, but these players now are fortunate enough that the FA put them on centralized contracts and they earn a salary through their club too for me the priority is to help make the women's super league sustainable in its own right so it's not reliant on uh, I suppose subsidies for want of a better word from men's football because with that comes vulnerability so we've seen clubs where you get a change in owner or men's football money's cut, they're, they're relegated, the women's club goes, or it goes from being professional back to, to amateur. So I think the most important thing in terms of the journey of the women's game here, through Barclays, through TV rights, through sponsors, through working with the clubs to get the right infrastructure in the clubs and capability to commercialise the game and grow the audiences, we can stand on our own two feet. That's the next big bit of the journey. I think we can get there in sort of five years. That's more important, really, in some ways, than thinking about having, I suppose, a conversation about are women footballers going to earn, a handful of them earn, you know, well, they're not going to earn what men earn because they're earning, you know, three, four, five hundred K a week. Um, I think the, most, the next big step for us is to make it sustainable so women's football can, can protect itself. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I know there's been a lot of headlines about record-breaking audiences, but on average, it's still pretty low. So, yeah, maybe, Kelly, do you, what do you think about building the audience? How do you think that can happen from a player's perspective? It's about, ex- it's about exposure, um, getting the games, like Kelly said, on TV. Um, it helps when the national team is successful. So I know in 2015, the Lioness is... Um, had a, a fantastic following, reaching, you know, peaking figures, even though there's a massive time difference from Canada to England. This um, June into July in Paris, I'm hoping it's the same time difference, so a lot more people, thousands, millions of people will be able to watch and really follow um, the Lionesses, and, and it helps them that they do well. You know, if they get, not get out of the group, I think that's a devastating um, impact that it could have on the women's game. I don't see that happening because of the quality that they have in the squad and the manager that they have, I see them at, le- at least reaching the semi-final. Um, and, you know, having that exposure p- 
put on BBC and you can see the team play and perform. And the product's there now. Probably when I was playing, um, you know, eight, nine, ten years ago, the product probably wasn't there. The quality on the field wasn't there. Now it is. You know, you can see a high-level performance. Yes, the game isn't as fast as the men's game because women are built differently, but... There's a, it's a game, you know, if you want to watch football, it's a different game. And you have, like, open eyes with it. And I, you know, say to anybody, give women's football a chance. If you watch it, a high-level, you know, England v. USA, you're going to enjoy the game because of the quality on the pitch, the technique that the players have, the vision, um, the endurance. It's a fast physical game for the women's game. And I think once you see that, then it will win a lot of people over. And it's about having that exposure. Then, okay, yes, you've seen the Lionesses get out of the group, into the semifinals, into the final one, the World Cup, whatever. But then can we get that fan base to come through the gates and watch an Arsenal, a Birmingham, a Reading, a Man City, a Chelsea, and come out on the weekends and support the club, club, club game, and not just the international level? From my opinion, I also think it's appealing beyond women. It's appealing to sports fans. I mean, that's how tennis did it. If you look at the respect for women's tennis, it comes from a great game. It comes from people being exposed to that. And, you know, men are the first to say that will be when I think we've really succeeded in driving the audiences, when we're not only appealing to families, we're not only appealing, you know, to to the women because we're supporting other women, we're appealing to the sports fan. I think the one challenge, which is a bit controversial, is that we're going to have to fight against a little bit of the Me Too reaction that's going on right now and have them focused focused on the sport and focused on the beauty of the sport. And we're not watching women's football, we're watching beautiful football. And I think that's something that's really important is that it's not just at a big eventer moment. It's not not watching it because it's women. We're not investing because it's women. We're investing in the sport and the participation for both young boys and young girls to grow the game. So you all kind of mentioned this grassroots movement and I've read about this where it seems like there is more of an effort to have youth sports and appeal to younger women. What is the role of that in building up the game? I feel like in the US that's a that is part of it, why there's some success there. I would say the one thing that we're behind and you guys are obviously much closer to the participation side, but where we don't we don't have Title Nine over here and I think that really gave a boost to women's sports in the US. That sort of that is for everyone when you have in, in university um, a number of men's sports, you have, they have the equivalent number of women's sports that are funded by the universities and the academic, educa- academic institutions. And I feel that from, from my experience, there's a lot less emphasis on women being active in sports and it's not as cool as it might be in the US. It's coming and it's, I think the Lionesses and women's sports in general are getting farther, but I think they are behind a little bit because there's not that legislation and that em- emphasis culturally on women. Yeah, Kelly, I remember reading, and correct me if this was wrong, but that you were kicked off a co-ed team when you were younger. I mean, that's certainly different than what we, what we had, what I know of growing up in the U.S. I was the only girl playing um, in my town, and I joined a local boys team, and I had short hair back then. I looked like a boy. I was a tomboy, and I was scoring six, seven, eight goals a game, and then, you know, dribbling around all the other players and scoring goals and setting up my teammates and word got around the town that there's this fantastic player called Kelly Smith. Isn't he amazing? And I was getting all the headlines in the papers and everything. And then, obviously, the more games that we played, um, it got out the fact that I was a girl. And it wasn't the, the players, my teammates, or the other boys that I was playing against. It was the opposition's parents that had a problem with the fact... I mean, I was seven years old, you know. I just wanted to play the game, but it was the parents that actually stopped me from playing. They sat down and um, they said... 
that I couldn't, couldn't play anymore. We wouldn't field a team against the girl. So my dad had to sit me down and say, Kelly, you can't play football. So I was upset. I said, let's find another team. So went across town. Same thing happened, scoring, making a name for myself. And then the opposition didn't want to play against the girl. So at a very young age, I faced a lot of a, you know, adversity then and being told that I couldn't play and um, it's the wrong sport for me to play. Go play netball. But... I was just so passionate and I knew I had a, a talent and a gift. I wanted to play football and no one was going to tell me that I wasn't going to play. So I actually found a girls team to play on. We had to travel out of town um, an hour away for training and games and, and it progressed from there. So, you know, there's been setbacks in my career where I, if I would have listened to those, those parents and saying that I shouldn't play football, I wouldn't have reached the heights um, that I have over the years and, you know, played for England that was always a dream of mine. What are the opportunities like now for young girls who want to play? Um, yeah, no, it's hugely different now. Um, you know, we've got um, girls' football teams right, and women's football teams right across the country. It's about 6,000 girls' teams. I think the first count uh, when I came in working in development years ago, we found about 80 teams in the, in the country. Um, between two and a half, three million girls and women play some form of football in this country. There's still more to do. There's still some schools, remarkably, um, that kind of segregate their PE provision based on gender, which I find still incredible in this day and age. Um, part of the Barclays sponsorship is to try is to work with us to try and make sure every girl gets a chance to play football in schools because 96% of boys play football in schools, either in the curriculum, outside of the curriculum. So there's a, a big focus from us as a governing body to get football in schools um, to develop girls' football in our clubs. Um, we've, last year we set up 800, they're called Wildcats, clubs across the country that specialise in uh, 5 to 11-year-old coaching for girls. We've seen a phenomenal growth. Obviously the profile of the game's helping. I think that the difference, one of the big differences between us and, and uh, America is that we've had a lot of cultural barriers over the years to break down around what is what is deemed a girls' sport and a boys' sport. So I always used to like my job when I was development director for the FA as probably what it'd be like to try and work in American football, promoting women's American football, whereas in, your, in, in the US, you know, soccer is seen very much as a girls' and boys' sport. We've had to break some of that, those kind of cultural barriers down. They are breaking down because of the visibility uh, and profile of the women's game now. Um, but, you know, it's been, it's been a slog. But now this generation have got huge opportunities to play, which is fantastic. Yeah, I definitely think that's one of the differences that I've noticed where I think because football in the U.S. is not um, as popular, it's been easier for the women to succeed because they're not fighting. I think if there yeah. were... If this were like American football, the women would have a harder time. But they, there's room for them there, and there doesn't seem to be room, room here. And yeah, you mentioned these stereotypes that you have to uh, uh, fight against. And Kelly, I know that you're, you do commentary now. Um, do people accept you, know, you as an expert? I mean, obviously you're an expert, but there is definitely still a lot of sexism yeah, there's certainly now more opportunities um, for myself and some of my former colleagues that have retired that have come out and, and put themselves in the limelight to comment, commentate on men's football. Um, you know, it, it's been a difficult um, task for us. We have all the experience. We've, we've played in World Cups. We've played in Olympics, European Championships. We've played at the highest elitist level. But there are still stigmas about women commentating on on men's football 
it's just a small minority of the trolls that you get on, on Twitter and Facebook that tell you to get back in the kitchen and you should be doing the ironing and, um, you know, very disrespectful. And Alex Scott recently has come out and said she was majorly trolled um, and gets it on a sexist abuse on a daily basis. I've got it on a daily basis when I work for BT Sports Score. And you look at it and you read it and it does hurt you. And I think you have to quite have a quite a strong skin just to bat it away. But I was quite, I was struggling for a little bit, um, you know, dealing with those comments. It sticks in your mind, but you have to push it away and realize that you are respected within the industry. The pundits that you sit along, alongside value your opinion. Um, and it's good to have a little debate, you know, if you disagree with me or if I disagree with you, it doesn't mean that I'm any less than you just because I'm a female. I've got a strong, valid opinion and um, I want to put that across. So, you know, there are opportunities, like I said, now for, for women that are retiring from football to come and step into the women's game and the men's game. Just to note that the trolling is awful and I, can, I feel like any woman who is a public figure has to deal with this and it's like a part of your job and we should get paid to deal with that. Um, so I'm so sorry that you have to deal with that on a regular basis. Um, but as a, with the World Cup coming up, to turn to something more exciting, um, you guys are the experts. So for our new fans, who you're all going to be watching. What, um, what should we look out for? Who is going to, you know, give us the insider's take? I thought you were going to ask us who's going to win then. And, I mean, I was we all shuffling know down gonna... my chair. <laughs> um, well, I, as I said, England have a very good chance. Um, they've got youth. They've got experience. They've got a very young, hungry manager. They won the bronze medal in 2015 in Canada. So the mentality now is there within the England squad. Germany are always um, a strong force within um, football. When I played for England, we never beat Germany, um, <laughs> which really still grinds on me to this day. But the USA, number one in the world, um, won the last World Cup. It's hard to do it back-to-back, -back, but they've got a, a fantastic coach in Jill Ellis who is more than capable of galvanising that squad. Japan, are a, a, a fantastic side. Holland, there's just so many now. When I was playing... There was probably two or three nations that you knew would win. But now I'm saying five, six, seven nations. It's just so good to watch because before it's a little bit predictable, but now you can look at the, the national teams and think you can win it, you can win it. You, and it makes it exciting for the fans to, to engage and, and support the World yeah. Cup. Yeah, so now you all can go to your World Cup parties and sound, you know, you'll have the insider's take. Um, well, I want to thank you all so much for coming and talking about this, and um, we really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Paychecks' first ever live episode. If you like this show, please head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to rate and review. This show was hosted and reported by me, Rebecca Greenfield. This episode was edited by Janet Paskin and produced by Topher Forges. We also had production help from Francesca Levy and Jillian Goodman. Our original music is by Leo Citrin. Francesca Levy is Bloomberg's head of podcasts.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.